0: Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 12 and we're covering the first weeks of Operation Savannah, which began in October 1975. Battle group Zulu had entered Angola and then turned east first, then west and finally south to attack the major town of Onjiva from the north. After taking Onjiva, Zulu would turn back northwestly towards Zangongo and then head onwards to the port of Namibe. As we heard last episode, however, there was chaos in southern Angola. The MPLA held Anjiva along with the armed wing FAPLA, while the area featured patches of both UNITA and MPLA units, along with FNLA, towards central Angola. Some elements of the Portuguese army remained in places, such as in the port of Lobito, which was an additional challenge. Furthermore, Cubans were on the ground, along with Russian advisers. We heard how last episode Zulu had been confronted on the road south, to Anjiva by elements of Unita, who probably confused the South Africans with Portuguese troops, or were just in a mood to start shooting at anything. After they were sent packing from the town of kuvulai the battle group continued on its way. On Sunday, 19th October 1975, Zulu swung into the village of Anhangcha, a short distance from Onjiva, then formed a defensive position about 5 kilometres outside the settlement. Battle Group Bravo was based to the north alongside the road, and Battle Group Alpha to the south, a machine gun section was sent further south of the village to cut off the main road to the town of Zangongo. The attack on Anjiva started at one fifteen on the nineteenth of October with a mortar barrage aimed at MPLA troops who were stationed at the old Portuguese troop barracks. The MPLA fired back, killing one member of Alpha Group, wounding five. Meanwhile, the machine gun section ran headlong into an MPLA company which was lying in wait along the road into town. Alpha Group's Bushmen or Sand troops laid down heavy fire from their freight truck they were behind sandbags set up on the back. In the rush to move the truck into a better position, it became bogged down in a nearby ploughed field. Still, the battle did not last long. Instead of the 300 or 400 MPLA troops expected in Onjiba, there were actually only 150. They were overcome rapidly and retreated, leaving the town, which the SADF of radio operators called Papadez, in South African hands, that's because its name came from the colonial name which was Pereira de Daesh. So the SADF units set up another position west of Onjiva on the main road through to Zangongo, their next target. The idea was to hand over Onjiva to UNITA or FNLA soldiers who were on their way. They were also waiting for a flight from Rundu to land carrying supplies for the SA Defence Force before they would head off to Zangongo. This town was important for the MPLA as it was their headquarters in the Kaneni district. And it was decided that Nodikars or Ilant Nineties should join the coming battle to take the town. The intelligence report suggested that Zongongo was defended by around two hundred MPLA troops. Another SADF unit was approaching from the northwest, along with elements of the Exorcito Libertacao de Portugal, or ELP group. Remember, I mentioned there was the a small breakaway unit that were a form of Portuguese soldiers who joined those fighting for the liberation of Angola. They were part of a motorized attack force, also comprised of an infantry battalion commanded by Major Chris Prinsler, and they were bolstered by 81mm mortars. The big problem for Prinzler is he had no idea where battlegroup Zulu had ended up. It so happened that they were now on the road towards him with the strategic town of Zangongo between them. Also on their way were Noddy cars, the Elant 90s sent from Pretoria. Unfortunately, they had been painted with Viva Unita signs on the side which did not go down well with the ELP soldiers, such as the reality of sectarian warfare. So on the 20th of October, this little motorized force attacked Humbe, a small town a few kilometers northwest of Zangongo, on the main road. Zulu was still on its way from the south, from Anjiba. Commandant Dutoy's Irlands swung south of Zangongo, opening fire with cannon and mortars, and took the defenders completely by surprise. They had been fixated on the southeast side, where Battle Group Zulu had been drawn up and they did not expect this flanking manoeuvre. Commandant Dutoy's Elans were then ordered to turn around and attack Piu Piu, 23 kilometres north on the main road towards the port of Namibé, because it was a major training base for the MPLA. Unfortunately, the ELP company decided they'd rather loot Humbe and its single bottle store instead of fighting onwards immediately. They were supposed to set up a bridgehead on the road to the west of the river, but were too drunk to set up the defensive position. The MPLA were mobilizing further north and sent a number of tanks from the Kineni district towards Zangongo. It's now time for the SADF to take both piu and Zangongo, thought Zulu Task Group Commander Colonel Van Heerden. But before doing so, he decided he'd better check out the MPLA defenses for himself. He climbed aboard a spotter plane and flew at low level towards Zangongo but suddenly realized that the armored vehicles he saw below were actually SADF Defense Force Irlands. The town had already fallen and the MPLA troops base they had run away. At this point, the State Security Agency back in South Africa gave the formal go-ahead for the armoured vehicles to merge with Zulu. As you'll recall, there's a great deal of secrecy about the involvement of the South African Defence Force in the conflict, but it was thought the time had come to bolster the force heading towards Namube just in case they came across heavy weapons. This motley crew then drove onwards on the road northwesterly, resting 120 kilometres later. Near Chebembe. And here is an irony. More than 100 years earlier, a group of Trek Boers had made the same trip, ostensibly to settle in the highlands to farm, invited by the Portuguese. Remember, I mentioned this in an earlier podcast where we probed the early colonial period. Now, the descendants of some of these Boers were driving along the same road towards Namibe. The town of Humpata is around 20 kilometers south of Lubongo, which was the capital of the Huila district. One of the characteristics of this region was its large number of white inhabitants as it was high-lying and generally cooler than the lowlands to the south. There were a host of small towns on the roads approaching Lubango, which could also be a problem as the South Africans planned their attack. Intelligence reports indicated there were around 1,000 MPLA troops stationed in Lubango, reinforced by heavy weapons including armoured vehicles, mortars and machine guns. This battalion had fought off at least one UNITA attack, and they were regarded as a serious threat to any force trying to take the town. There was more bad news. A number of Cuban advisers were also based in Lubango, as well as Frilimo soldiers from Mozambique, just to give a sharp edge to the coming battle. One thing stood in the S.A. Defense Force's favor, and that was the speed at which they were moving. The fact that they'd managed to scoot 120 kilometres in one day and get quite close to Lubango had stymied the MPLA plan to send tanks from Luanda to help defend the town against the SA Defence Force. By 3 o'clock of the 22nd October 1975, the SA Defence Force had already overrun another small town called Joao de Almeida, catching the MPLA units there by surprise. When they entered the houses, many still had uneaten plates of food on the tables, and still warm. A group of FNLA troops were left behind as the SA Defence Force pressed on. These FNLA were led by a much feared Portuguese special forces officer known as Danny Roxa. Streams of refugees were passing, heading southwards towards the southwest African border, and some of these provided useful information about the MPLA positions. The task force took cover overnight at Chebembe, around 43 kilometres south of Lubongo. Some of the refugees had seen FAPLA troops taking cover on the main road not far away. So Commandant Delville Linford led Battle Group Alpha as they set off to attack MPLA. Here they came across a determined company of FAPLA soldiers at Umpata at about 5 o'clock in the evening, and an intense firefight developed which continued through the early evening until eventually Alpha overran the defenders. Two Sand soldiers of Alpha were wounded in that firefight and evacuated back to Rundu. Apparently, it was going to be a challenge to take Lubango. Firstly, there was thick vegetation and secondly, the road wound through hilly territory, ideal places to set up an ambush or two. Battle group Bravo cleared out the MPLA as they moved towards Lubango. The first ambush was easily overcome, but in the second they faced RPG-7 rocket attacks along with heavy fire from mortars. Again, The MPLA wilted in the face of the SA Defense Force aggressive tactics, leaving behind two recoilless 82mm cannon and a 122mm rocket launcher, as well as piles of ammunition. It was the SA Defense Force's first sight of the Russian 122mm rocket, or the Red Eye, as troops nicknamed it, a weapon that would become feared in upcoming battles. On the main road to Lubungo is a point known as Kilometer 16, 16 clicks to the town, in other words. The MPLA had set up another ambush there, but once more, the defenders fired a few desultory shots before running off, leaving weapons and vehicles behind. It was now that the fleeing MPLA soldiers began to spread the narrative that the South Africans were not only involved, they were using helicopter gunships along with tanks and artillery. This was not true, but the effect was to galvanize the Cubans and Russians into action. Whispers began of a mystery column of South Africans pushing northwards out of southwest Africa, a combination of mercenaries and Portuguese soldiers who were rushing supposedly towards Luanda, the capital. A panicked MPLA leadership ordered Lubango defended to the last man and then sent an armoured column from Namibia on the coast to the inland strategic town. They were reinforced with RPGs, 60mm, 82mm and 120mm mortars, as well as armoured vehicles. Lubongo is a picturesque town based 1,500 meters up in the highlands of Angola and lies at the foot of a range of hills. Surveying the limited maps he had, Task Force Zulu commander Colonel van Hirden ordered the airfield taken first. So, Commandant Breitenbach and his Chipenda units were sent to seize the important airfield. This was not going to be easy. There were 200 FAPLA troops based there, well dug in and in excellent positions. It was decided to launch the attack in the late afternoon so that any FAPLA counterattack would have to be at night, far more difficult to manage than during the day. As the attack began at 3 p.m., a large four-engine transport plane suddenly appeared overhead. Apparently it was carrying the extra mortars and ammunition requested by the MPLA in Lubango, but flew off when it was clear that a battle had developed. The armored vehicles overran their positions, leaving around 30 FAPLA dead, including the commander Quintino. Also wounded was the head of propaganda in the region, a man by the name of De Oliveira. He was Portuguese but had decided to join the MPLA and was now caught by the SA Defense Force fire. His car was peppered with bullets and his wife was killed but he was captured with a hand wound. De Oliveira's capture was a propaganda coup for the SA Defense Force who almost let him go. It was the FNLA troops and task force Zulu who refused to release him and during interrogation his real identity emerged after he initially claimed he was just a civilian. Ninety prisoners were taken, and the head of intelligence, Major Dries van Kola, wanted to hold these men, particularly de and use them later, should he need to barter the release of possible South African prisoners. The task force then turned its attention to taking Lubango itself. They knew that an artillery unit was stationed at a high point called Monte Cristo. That was one target. The second was the downtown area itself, and the third was the military base on the east side of town. While some troops were detached to monitor the roads south to Humpata, the rest of Alpha Battle Group launched an attack on Monte Cristo at dawn the next day, 24th of October, along with ELP soldiers that had joined Zulu. Bravo Battle Group entered the town from the south at the same time and began clearing defensive positions, including an artillery battery. It was also raining, and the altitude meant the men were extremely cold. They had not been issued with raincoats when they set off weeks earlier, and now the lack of clothing was hampering their advance. While they were trying to stay warm, Battle Group Bravo targeted the old Portuguese barracks now held by MPLA. They mortared the barracks, but the rounds fell short. Still, the troops inside the barracks turned tail and disappeared into the gloom of the night. Alpha then failed to take Monte Cristo as the rain intensified. The men were told to huddle in place and await further orders. The next day dawned, it was found that all FAPLA and MPLA units had retreated from the high ground, leaving the large town to the South Africans. It was when they began searching the area, they discovered a trove of weapons left behind. These included 1,000 PPSH 7.62mm submachine guns, a pile of RPG-2 anti-tank weapons, 8 millimeter mortars, two unused 82 millimeter recoilless guns, 45 tons of AK-47 ammunition as well as 7.62mm rounds for the FN automatic rifles, a large amount of hand grenades and 122mm red-eye rockets. There was also a few thousand kilograms of explosives. Equally useful was the discovery of a cache of clothing including ponchos and raincoats. The South Africans now mounted the 82mm recoilless cannon on their vehicles. This was an excellent weapon accurate over 1,400 meters, but could fire fairly accurately up to 4 kilometers. This was going to be extremely useful in some of the upcoming battles, as we'll hear. However, the SADF attempt at keeping their involvement in the civil war in Angola secret had failed. By 23rd and 24th October, media reports circulated internationally that there were white South Africans fighting in a column, and this was now confirmed by members of their allies, the ELP, They had radioed each other, saying the South Africans were liberating the region, which did not go down well in Pretoria, and the MPLA had picked up the radio calls. Before this, it could have been plausibly denied, until, of course, the first bodies or prisoners appeared, and so far the South Africans had been able to kasevac their wounded to the south. No one had shown up as prisoners, but the SEDF had been rumbled. Taking stock of the situation by late October Task Force Zulu had succeeded over the previous nine days in pushing far into Angola, while to the northeast, Task Force Foxbat in Central Angola was facing an MPLA counter-offensive. Zulu was still on its way to the coast. The next target was Namibé, while in Central Angola, Foxbat under the command of Eddie Webb and Van der Waals were trying to coordinate their next moves. Initially, they were told to head towards Lobito, directly westwards, but this had become more difficult as UNITA and MPLA forces were locked in combat along the route. Foxbat was short of ammunition and fuel and sent an urgent radio message to Rindu for more. Moreover, the MPLA had begun reinforcing towns around Quibala, which lay on the main road towards Luanda. After the initial confusion, MPLA units were now trying to resupply their men in defensive positions, particularly with mortars and heavier weapons, they realized the South Africans were coming. Webb and his Foxbat Task Force were also waiting for a transport convoy of weapons expected from Kinshasa, which were on their way via Menong to the east. I'll return to what happened in the Central Battlefront during our next episode, but it's important to remember that there were these two main fronts being expanded by the SA Defense Force simultaneously. So we have now arrived at another of those crucial moments in this war. Having been exposed in Angola, The SA Defense Force HQ had a few pertinent questions to answer. First, would they continue assaulting Angola, with a view to seizing the strategic ports as initially outlined? This was not an easy question to answer, as the Cubans had already announced they were to send more troops and weapons to Angola. As we've already heard, the Cubans had a great deal of experience in both conventional and unconventional warfare, and combined with their logistic support from Russia would be far more difficult to overcome than just the Angolans. Secondly, would the South African Defence Force continue fighting northwards with two different forces, Foxbat and Zulu, or would it be tactically clever to combine them? The SA Defence Force had now seized vast swathes of Angola, but like any other invading force, their supply lines were getting longer and longer, and the enemy was now behind them, although they had gone to ground. For Task Force Zulu, the next target was Namube on the southern coast, which had escaped the worst effects of the Angolan Civil War, but not for long. Unknown to the South Africans, a company of Portuguese army troops was stationed at the army base in the port, and there were also FNLA units at the port too. Zulu commander Colonel Van Heden knew he had to take Namibé before continuing the push north and did not want an organized MPLA company or battalions behind his task force. Meanwhile, MPLA leadership back in the capital, Luanda, was suddenly struck by the fact that they were now going to have to defend towns and cities based on their strategic importance and Namibia was not as vital as those further north on the road to Luanda. Lobito and Benguela, for example, which were much more important and much closer to Luanda, and both were strategically placed on the railway line to Zaire. The MPLA had initially ordered a ship called the Olivia to be placed on standby, and ammunition and material was loaded at Point Noir near Luanda with the idea of rushing to Namibé. Then the loading was halted and weapons taken to the capital instead. Luanda was going to be bristling with artillery tanks and rockets in a short while, and Namibé was relegated to less important. And things in Namibé were beginning to fall apart, because on the 25th of October 1975, reports began to come in that the FNLA and FAPLA were fighting for the town. Eventually, Fapla got the upper hand, driving the FNLA out, and they set up three artillery pieces of an unknown type at the main road, entering the port. Worryingly for the South Africans, a number of Cubans were also present. The South Africans were driving towards this port, and by the 27th they began descending the steep road from the highlands down into the coastal plain. All the men were tense. They knew that Fapla once more controlled access points and were ready to use them. Fifteen kilometers outside Namubé, the road wound between high cliffs and the task force ran into the first FAPLA units, which opened fire with anti-tank and machine guns. These were fought off by Alpha Company's sand soldiers and the FAPLA section withdrew. Two kilometers outside the town, Alpha Group halted and took up defensive positions awaiting Bravo. The lookouts saw a large convoy approaching from the north along the coastal road and before any action could be taken, they were fired on with 122mm missiles, RPG anti-tank rockets and heavy machine guns. It was dusk, so the fire was inaccurate, but the men watched the traces arc over their vehicles and foxholes. They dug as quickly as possible. Luckily, Bravo Group then arrived, slowed down by a series of battles against MPLA troops on the secondary road they'd taken into the port. With their help... They drove off the FAPLA convoy. At the same time, MPLA senior officers and political leadership had decided to fly into the local airport to bolster FAPLA morale. They had been flown in by a Mozambican Philemon North Atlas aircraft just out of interest. The ties between the independence movements were being reinforced by these kinds of mutual support, which was duly noted by the South Africans. While Task Force Zulu took up positions ready for the night, a captain of the Portuguese paratroop regiment, 150 strong, stationed in Namibe, appeared suddenly with a white flag. He announced he did not want to fight, but also told Vanierden that there were three freighters at anchor in the port a Greek, Italian, and Portuguese, but there was also a heavily armed Portuguese frigate or corvette protecting these freighters. Colonel Vanierden knew that the guns on this ship would have destroyed Task Force Zulu and he had to find a way to take the port without the dangerous Portuguese vessel taking potshots at them. In the morning when we attack, I will blast your ship out of the water with my artillery, warned von Heerden, lying through his teeth. He had no artillery. On the next morning, on the 28th of October, the task force began to move, and then they saw that the frigate had gone, and the streets were quiet. As they approached the harbour area, a company of FAPLA troops opened fire, the officers who had flown in the previous day were leading this unit, including Cubans. They were overcome fairly rapidly, without further SAD of casualties. Tons of military equipment was seized and food and uniforms as well. By zero nine hundred, the port town of Number Bay was in SA Defense Force hands. All senior officers and the rest of the MPLA units had fled northwards on the coastal road towards Benguela or Lobito, and Van Hirden was suddenly aware that as he progressed from here on he had faced far more potent resistance. The Portuguese paratroop company was allowed to fly out that day to Luanda, they were on their way back to Europe anyway and wanted no further part of this African war. On the 29th of October, Unicef's Jonas Savimbi addressed a press conference in Lusaka where he said his men had taken the port. But a day later the MPLA released their own press report saying Namibe had fallen to South Africans. Strategically, Pretoria had a big problem. The international repercussions were going to be swift, but for now Task Force Zulu could bask in their military success, with many more to come along with a few defeats. The disconnect between what the politicians wanted and what the army was doing was going to become more of a problem shortly. But the amount of FOPLA ammunition and weapons they'd seized could arm a battalion of men. While Alpha Battle Group secured the area around the port, Bravo was left to ensure no looting broke out as they waited for either UNITA or the FNLA to take over. During taking of the port, one South African had been shot in the arm, possibly by a sniper. He was airlifted back to Rundu for treatment. Otherwise, it had been a miraculous few days of warfare for the Defence Force. Casualties about a dozen, and yet they had seized well over two dozen towns and villages and seized Angola's southern port of Namibé. We must halt right now and secure the perimeter. Next episode, we'll hear more about the Central Angolan Battlefront and a political decision in the United States that would have major repercussions for the South Africans. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. You can also send me an email through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.